Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From deep within Castle Black, all the way to the shores at the Muddy Gate, King's Landing, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Knapsack by myself today, but I do want to wish a special birthday to one of the contributors here, Thomas Risling. Sir Thomas the Tall just this past week celebrated his name day, and we're very happy to have him part of the Casterly Talk family. That family includes Lon Harris, Rachel Cushing, Andres Cabrera, and I hope you're following their endeavors. Please give their shows and their Work, a follow, and a listen, especially Andres Ace Cabrera, as we sometimes call him. Uh, he and Robert Butler III have their show, The Meaning Of. Look for it. It's on their own now. They're independent. Support those guys as they give meaningful, in-depth insight into the movie conversation game. All right. We're here to talk Game of Thrones, a world of ice and fire, a song of ice and fire, a prequel of ice and fire. That's right. The world still rolls on as we look back on the show. I haven't yet begun my rewatch. Uh, we talked about it last week. Uh, Eric Monroe called in uh, saying he's in. Thomas is in. And I'm still waiting. And I thought about it this week. But you know what? I haven't finished all the other shows I need to get out of the way. Game of Thrones, the last two years, just the uh, last two seasons, I should say, just really took my all, my everything, my concentration, my brain, my heart, my soul. And even in the downtime, I don't know if, I don't know if you are uh, all feeling the same way. In the downtime, it felt like it could come back any day because we didn't really have that in-game in sight, that release date. They played with that for a long time. So I, I just stopped watching other television programs. I just stopped watching things, things that I loved. Veep, one of my all-time favorite shows. I still have to finish it. Uh, I watched the first season of Barry, but I couldn't watch the second season. I couldn't concentrate at Game of Thrones. Even some all-time favorites. I am one of those Simpsons fans that kept watching The Simpsons when everyone else said, "Ah, you shouldn't watch The Simpsons. And I still think there's some great stuff in those seasons. I stopped watching that. All my energy, and in terms of television, went to Game of Thrones. So I have to really kind of remind myself it's okay to come down from that, to really kind of take take a moment. 
just kind of reflect. And, and, and that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm sure a lot of you are in that same boat. It's still, we still have to, uh, season eight was so big. We still have to, I think, take a moment, go back and look at it and look at the entire show and start connecting the dots. Uh, so uh, today we're going to be taking more of your calls that you leave on the Anchor app or through Anchor. You can just call uh, the uh, Casterly Talk show, leave a message. You have 59 seconds. Don't feel pressured by that. 59 seconds is a very long time. Trust me, as someone who's performed a lot of stand-up comedy, sometimes successfully, sometimes eh, more often than not, not successfully, 59 seconds is a long time. We talked uh, about some news last week uh, that uh, was uh, some of the insights and some of the things learned from director Miguel Sapochnik in an interview he gave with the uh, IndieWire podcast, IndieWire Filmmaker Toolkit. And I hadn't had a chance to listen to all of it at the time. And you know what? As of right now, I'm still about 45 minutes short of listening to the two-hour and about 18-minute, 41-second podcast. And it's really good. It's really insightful. But it's also interesting. I mean, yes, it's interesting. But what is interesting is that buried within it is some weird kind of tension between Dan and David, as Miguel says he likes to be called, and Miguel and uh, other directors in the process. Nothing bad. Don't read into it. No clickbait articles are needed here. All right, hold your horses, screen rent. No, it's just uh, the creative process is, is, is an interesting one, and sometimes it works wonderfully, and, and, and there's no problems, and everyone high-fives, and there's smiles and laughter. And great things are produced. And sometimes it's not so much harmonious and fun and easy. And sometimes still great things are produced. Uh, sometimes it goes awry. Uh, obviously, things worked out for Game of Thrones and director Miguel Sapochnik. But you can hear in his conversation, which is now years removed some from some of the incidents, that uh, it wasn't all easy. It wasn't all peachy. Uh, his first big stuff came in season five, and Hard Home was it. And he talks about Dan and David not liking him, uh, having problems, not trusting him. He was not on the inside circle of trusted creators for Game of Thrones and some of the problems he had making Hard Home. Obviously, it worked. Obviously, it was great. Then he comes back with Battle of the Bastards. And by then, He'd been directing some other things earlier in the season. Of course, by then he had a little bit more of their trust, but there's still still a lot of tension. Even the big, some of the big things to come out of that about his, uh, I wanted to kill off these people. They didn't. Uh, uh, talking about previs and how sometimes some of the fights were so planned out ahead of time. He didn't feel um, it didn't feel right for him as a director. There's a lot of stuff buried in there, and he's not angry. He's not talking bad about Dan and David. He's just admitting to a lot of the struggles. And I find that I find that very interesting. The behind-the-scenes story of Game of Thrones is still to be told, and not, not a cool, very cool and insightful HBO documentary. No, no, that kind of stuff uh, is, is great, and I want more of that. But I, I wonder if there will ever be that behind-the-scenes book of, of the making of and all the stories, all the things, the unaired pilot, which we're going to talk about here a little bit later today, the, the casting changes, um, some of the decisions, some things that are there and aren't there. And I'm looking forward to it. And I don't want to tell all one. I want it to be written and presented with, with love. I, I think of my pal Chris Taylor and his book, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. It goes into some things uh, with a very honest point of view, but it, it definitely loves Star Wars. Chris Love Star Wars. 
Uh, but we love these stories. And I, for one, am like, uh, I, 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 I like those kind of things a lot. I, I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people out there just really love those behind-the-scenes stories. It's very interesting, especially if you look back on some of the big pop culture decades, the 80s and the 90s, the 70s for sure, I mean 60s. I think from the 1960s on, pop culture is something very different. Uh, late 50s on with Elvis and everything, the game changes. Um, but look at the 80s and the 90s. Pop culture was up and running, and it goes to a new level. And we just consume the stuff. We love the stuff. We were there. We were fans of the stuff. But it seems like there's a lot of content now that I love that is nothing more than looking back on those big, big, big pop culture eras and just giving you the true story, giving you the inside scoop, and it's fascinating. And now it's like we relive uh, all this stuff and, and we're stuck in this nostalgia circle, but I'm okay with it. I think with a couple years' time, we could get one of those books. I hope we get one of those books, kind of a, a real in-depth look back at what went down. The Miguel Sapochnik interview is very interesting. It's very intriguing. You can sense just a little bit, like I said, just a little bit of tension still there. He talks openly about how he took season seven off, how he almost uh, was there to do the um, episode where the uh, snow team six goes north of the wall. Uh, but to save his marriage and perhaps his life, he turned it down because that's how much it takes to make these shows, to make these episodes. So it's pretty fascinating, highly recommended. I'm going to finish it. And who knows? Maybe the last 10 minutes, he gives an entire uh, open uh, tone poem uh, performance uh, in support of and love of Dan and, Dan and David. And don't get me wrong, he, he, he doesn't talk bad about them. But if you read between the lines, there's definitely a lot of things going on into the making of that show. I have been slowly rereading Feast for Crows. A Feast for Crows, excuse me. Uh, when I mean slowly, I mean, let's see, I am on page 262. We have, uh, what do we got? Uh, close to a thousand. What is the final total? I'm like, I'm like not looking back uh, at the pages because I don't want to spoil a book I've already read. That's pretty silly. Uh, other houses, great and small. Thanks for that, George. Nine, well, that's appendix stuff here. Let me get the actual page number. The actual page number is 900. Oh, there's a lot of families. A lot of families. That's pretty fascinating. I wonder how George, did George just sit down one day? The kings and their courts. 990, no, 978 pages. Oh, but this is that final letter. I love that letter. I love that letter that George writes in the paper. I have that paperback version that you can order online there. All right, 900. This is exciting podcasting. What you, would you do the other day? I listened to Ken turn pages. It's almost, almost ASMR. Uh, 976 pages. And then you have the letter that George wrote, meanwhile, back on the wall, uh, where he addresses that book four did not have a lot of the characters that you might love. So I'm on 200, page 262. Uh, when I say slow, I mean very, very slow. I'm just taking my time reading things here and there. But I love some of the insights, some of the things. This is only my second time through A Feast for Crows. So I'm picking up on some things. I totally forgot. It's a great little Cersei moment. Uh, not featured in the show. Uh, she, of course, is uh, uh, following the death of Tywin, obsessed with uh, finding Tyrion, finding the killer of her father, all those kind of things. So basically, the, the, the Tower of the Hand is destroyed. It's, it's torn down. It's, it's burnt down. And she, she hates this city. She, 
She says, uh, the city is a cesspit. For half a groat, I would move the court to Lannisport and rule the realm from Casterly Rock. But she talks about how that's a dream, but she had a kind of a little uh, a pipe dream she knows she can't accomplish. But there is a great little thing here. Uh, Jamie saying to her, even if Tyrion were still hiding in the castle, he won't be in the Tower of the Hand. We reduced it to a shell. And she says, what would that we could to the same? So, also, I've been doing my audio book all week. My, my tongue is a little tight. Would that we could do the same to the rest of this foul castle, castle, says Cersei. After the war, I mean to build a new palace beyond the river. And she thinks to herself, she had dreamed of it the night before last, a magnificent white castle surrounded by woods and gardens, long leagues from the stinks and noise of King's Landing. And I don't know why that struck me. I read that a couple days ago, and I just, I just, it's this little insight into Cersei, and I could see uh, Lena Headey doing it, uh, just the same. This idea that Cersei spent her whole life in King's Landing and wanted to to rule it and wanted to be part of the ruling of King's Landing once she uh, came to court, so to speak, and joined Robert. Uh, whether she wanted to or not, she was there. She didn't want to leave. We see it on the show. Marjorie wants to have Tommen send her back to Casterly Rock. She does not want to go. And that's one of those moments where Cersei... Kind of finally like, oh, I'm going to take control. I'm burning all of you down. But I love this little insight here in from A Feast for Crows where she wants to rule this city, but her heart's not there. She doesn't love this city. And they always talk throughout uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and, and it comes through on the show too at times, about King's Landing itself. King's Landing being this, uh, you know, uh, cesspit, as Cersei says here, uh, foul stenches, smells, sounds, it doesn't sound tremendously pleasant. So you can understand that Cersei doesn't want to stay there, but I, I think it's very interesting, a, a telling a little insight to this character. She did not want to leave. She wanted to rule it, but she wanted no part of it. She wanted to be across from it. Even more uh, poetic that it came crashing down around her, and the thing that she didn't really want deep inside, but the thing that she could not let go of was the thing that killed her. Let's go to the phones right now. All right, I love saying that. And, uh, you know, eventually we'll do some live call-ins here. I do it over in the Knapsack Files, tied in through my Patreon page. But let's take some calls right now from you all here on Anchor. Hey, Ken, it's Vic. Hope you're well. I went down a rabbit hole recently on Game of Thrones Facebook groups, and there's definitely still a lot of angry people out there. But one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading through some chat boards was, how do you think Danny will ultimately be remembered? Is her story more hero than villain? The best parallel I can draw for this question is to Darth Vader. You know, Anakin was a hero who fell to the dark side and became one of the greatest fictional villains we've ever seen. And even though he was ultimately redeemed at the end, I think general audiences, when they hear the name Vader, they associate it with a villain instead of a hero. So what about Danny? At the end, do you think she'll be remembered for the good things she did or the bad? Would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Vic, for that call. Love hearing from Vic. He's been calling in since the Daily Thrones days. I love this thought here. I love this deep thinking, this taking back, taking a look back on things there and, uh, and actually looking to the future. Love what he's saying about Darth Vader. Yeah, Vader is is still remembered 
by us in, in the real world and pop culture is this big villain. We love Darth Vader. And uh, even if you grew up with the prequels, you eventually, you know, kind of uh, follow his journey. And, and, and in a weird way, I guess you, you root for him. I don't know. I don't know. But in story, uh, Darth Vader is uh, the redemption of Darth Vader is not publicly known. It's not widespread. So he's still definitely remembered as a villain. So so in story, Danny will probably go down in Westeros as kind of a monster. I don't think that's fair. And I don't think you have to see her that way. I've said a lot before, uh, almost to the point of uh, it becomes an inside joke about Stannis Baratheon and, and, and his journey and how there's a big lesson in it. And, and I've tied it to Daenerys Targaryen. And I think years from now, fans of the show, and God bless you, Vic, for going in those chat rooms and, and reading some of, the, uh, some of the stuff there. I, I could not do that. I think ultimately... Danny will be remembered for the heroic things she did throughout her journey, throughout the show. I wish, and this is that Stannis thought, I, I wish people could see what happens to her as some sort of a lesson. Same with the lesson of, of Anakin, little Annie. Uh, George Lucas went that direction, whether you like to or not, because he wanted to show a, a, a good kid, a good kid raised right uh, under tough circumstances, horrible circumstances, he was a slave child. A kid raised right can make the choice to go bad. And here's how it might happen. That, that's what George was trying to accomplish. And I think he does it quite well, actually. Uh, 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 but I, I think the same can be said for Danny. And it might play out, obviously, different and more deeper and layered in the books. We get that. I think that conversation is, is tired, tiresome to keep having. But as far as the show and, and her place in pop culture, you might just want to erase the last season. Maybe you're that kind of fan, and, and that's fair, and that's fine. Even if you do that, you can look at all the things she did do, and I, I don't think any of it is erased. I think she did amazing things. She is the breaker of chains. Her heart was in the right place. She had some demons. She had some things buried inside her. She had some bad family histories, and she had some horrible things happen to her continuously and she kept coming back from them danny was inspirational to a lot of people a lot of people that character means the world they have tattoos they have uh, toys figures they cosplay as her as her they probably named their children or dogs or cats after her i don't think any of that needs to go away it shouldn't go away if anything you should look at this story and think this person accomplished so much but still let some other things consume her. Still let that pursuit of the throne, pursuit of her destiny, take her down a path she, she shouldn't go. And, and that's one of her final points of legacy. That's one of her final lessons. Danny taught a lot of people a lot of things along the way, uh, from simply standing up for yourself to uh, overcoming your oppressors to overcoming your abusers to uh, making this decision to do right by the people, for the good of the people, uh, learning from past ruling mistakes and sticking her feet in the Maronese sand and saying, I'm going to learn to be a ruler. I think she did all these wonderful things that taught a lot of people a lot of lessons. So let her final one, her fatal one, be a final lesson to you as well. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. Believe me, I still sometimes cringe when I think of some of the things the character of Stannis Baratheon did. But Danny is just that, a character. 
She didn't really burn down a city with a dragon. So everything else is still there. If you were moved by her, you can still be moved by her. And that's why, Vic, I think, in the end, and it might be a while, and there might be some, even some listening right now, We'll never quite get over what uh, happened with the character of Daenerys Targaryen, what she decided to do. That's fine. That's fine. I just think over time, she will be remembered a little bit more as a hero for a lot longer uh, than she was a villain. Let's keep going here with a call from our friend Kevin. Three cocktail questions. Hey, Ken, Kevin Ross. It's great that you're continuing the uh, Casually Talk show, uh, past episode eight, and into the new books, and in the new prequel series. But uh, I have a meta, sort of a big meta question for all of us out there. Uh, how much do you want the new books and the uh, pre, uh, prequel series to match as much of the show as possible? Uh, because we have a little saying over here. Uh, speculation is the death of point of view point of view is the death of speculation. Um, It simply means that because new information can be dropped on us at any particular point in time, it can change the result of what's, what's being said. Uh, As an example in the show, the moment we all heard that there were multiple three eyed Ravens changed a lot of theories out there in the community forever. So what do you think? How much speculation and point of view do you actually want? Kevin getting it in 59 seconds. See, look at that. Vic and Kevin getting a lot in in 59 seconds. All right. I love Kevin and his show Three Cocktail Questions on uh, Anchor. You can find it. He puts some stuff out there occasionally, and he dives into these deep theories. Pours himself a nice drink, and he just just talks through these theories. And, and sometimes I... Uh, I fully agree, and sometimes I go, oh, no, Kevin. Uh, but I really like what he's saying here. Uh, the point of view speculation theme uh, sounds uh, some nice trippy-dippy stuff there. I'm not uh, quite sure about that myself, Kevin, but I understand what you mean. And it's very interesting uh, about the books going forward and whether or not George is writing them right now uh, or the rumors that they're all finished and on a shelf. Uh, I do believe I have a... Area 51-worthy theory that eh, there might have been some waiting for the show to wrap up. But again, I don't know. I'm not the one sitting across from George in a New Mexico barbecue restaurant or something. So I'll say this. I've been watching lately a lot of interviews and clips of interviews with George R. R. Martin on YouTube. They're all over. You just watch one and then your algorithm will can forever contain uh, a three to five to eight minute or more clips of George R. R. Martin talking. And, and it's fascinating stuff. I think he is just an amazingly just uh, uh, intelligent, uh, wonderfully bizarre, uh, insightful person. I, I just I just love everything about him. I could listen to him talk for a very long time. He is both very sure of himself and who he is and the story he's told. And he's also just a very humble guy. He wants to watch football in New Mexico and wrote some crazy stories. It's a weird mix and I love watching him. He has said on a few occasions that no, the show does not influence the books. It doesn't influence the story. And things have come out after big moments. Ah, I'm going to, yeah, Hodor holds the door, but it's, it's a little different in my book. And we've heard all that kind of stuff. But there, there are interviews, and I've talked about it here in Casterly Talk before, where he does, he does kind of admit that he sees and hears, maybe even more importantly, hears the character's voices, uh, the ones on the TV show when he's writing now. 
Davos Seaworth is now Liam Cunningham in his mind. Uh, Baelish, uh, all these kind of characters. And some characters he admits are even done better on the show. We've talked about that too. Uh, uh, he, uh, Shay comes to mind where he just, uh, uh, he just thinks the performance uh, just was transformative for the character and wishes maybe, you know, uh, this is now I'm paraphrasing and not quoting him here, that, but maybe wishes he'd done a little differently. Uh, um, Rob Stark, whether or not he wishes he would have written Rob Stark differently doesn't really matter, but he thinks the show kind of uh, handled it better because it could. Rob Stark wasn't a point-of-view character in the books, but in the show he was because you had this great young actor, Richard Madden, and, and that changed a lot of things. Uh, it was interesting, Tyrion, he said, was rather close, maybe not so much the exact appearance because uh, Dinklage is a, is a handsome man, so it wasn't going to be the... Tyrion that uh, we know in the books who's so grossly deformed and just ugly, uh, really a lot more uglier to begin with, but that uh, Dinklage, he said, probably got it uh, uh, most like uh, the character in the books, uh, not discounting anyone else, though. Um, but it's been fascinating. So, yeah, going forward with, with the books, uh, to Kevin's question, I wonder what our expectations are going to be for the books, and if... It's hard to separate, as I just talk uh, talk freely here. It's hard to separate sometimes. Even as I'm reading A Feast for Crows, I I hear and see the characters that I've been watching for the last uh, eight or nine years. I can't separate it, even when they're doing and saying things very, very differently. So a lot of what I'm expecting to happen in the books going forward uh, it's going to be based on what I saw on the show or maybe some of the answers that I want uh, from the questions the show created. Kevin mentions the uh, multiple three-eyed ravens. Now, personally, I'll tell you what, I never, I always thought there was a bunch of those. I never thought differently about that. But the fact that it may be there more exist and they're tied to the history of the Night King, we'll see how it pertains to the Night's King, all those different things there. Um, but it, it begs the question, if I don't get that answer, if I don't get a, an answer to a question started on the show, uh, what's that going to do for my enjoyment of the books? I'm going a little off track here, but I, I think you can all see where I'm going to go. Uh, it'll be interesting. You know, Lon Harris, we're going to get him back on very shortly. Uh, he's uh, finally taking that dive into the books, reading A Game of Thrones, and talking to him about it. He's having a great time. But he has a different experience already reading it, where I did read it the season after. I got into the books uh, after by after season one, by season four, I had read everything. I, uh, and all the way through two and three, I kind of already knew a lot of the things, right? So I uh, literally studied the maps every day and uh, take, took that, that, that deep dive in. But Lon waited. Lon waited the entire time. So now, eight years in, with the story complete, he's going back and he's having an interesting time, a fun time. And having some conversations with him, uh, you know, we're just like, yeah, yeah, George, I got that. I know what the Crossroads Inn looks like. Get to the point. So our our experiences for the books going forward, if you are a show fan and are reading the books or just starting or waiting for the next one to come out, it is going to change all the way around. I don't think it, it, it can be any other way. So we'll see what ends up happening. I don't know how that changes uh, our speculation yet, or at least mine, but it's there, and we are going to be talking a lot more about the books going forward. But first, we need to take a break here on Casterly Talk. A couple calls on the other side of this. 
Hey, Casterly Talk fans, real quick news, exciting news. On Saturday, August 24th, 2019, in the year of our Lord, I will be in Arroyo Grande, California, my hometown, my stomping grounds, as part of the Central Coast Film Society's special screening of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. I'll be there hosting a Q&A after. There's a VIP meet and greet before. It's going to be a lot of fun celebrating Star Wars with all of you. I'll have copies of my book, Why We Love Star Wars, there for purchase. Or you can have copies you already have in your possession. Bring them on in. And I'll give a little signature on them. People like that. Thanks for reading my book. Ken, I'll be able to do that. VIP tickets at $35. Early admissions, $15. General admission adult, $10. Kids, 12 and under. And members of the Central Coast Film Society at 7 bucks for you. This is all at the Clark Center. For the Performing Arts in Arroyo Grande, California. Purchase tickets now if you want to go at clarkcenter.org slash events. For more information about the event, go to centralcoastfilmsociety.org. And hopefully, I'll see you all there celebrating Star Wars. here on Casterly Talk. Thanks for sticking around. Hope to see some of you at that event if you're local or can be local. It's going to be a lot of fun. And thank you to the Central Coast Film Society for putting that on. All right. We're talking Game of Thrones. We're talking a world of ice and fire. And we're taking your calls. You want to call into the show? Have something you want to ask? Something you want to say? Something you want to get off your chest? You can do it. Just follow the show on the Anchor app. You can do that on your phone, or you can go to your desktop, and then you can find a link and a button. It's a button. And just leave a voice message, like you're calling your grandma. I'm just like your grandma, except I love Game of Thrones. Unless, of course, your grandma loves Game of Thrones, too, then I want to hang out with you and your grandma. Let's talk Game of Thrones with Grammy. All right. We got some people that did get through. It's time to hear they have to say. Hey, Ken and Cashley Talk. So last week, this briefly came up, but I am still very fascinated by the original unaired pilot of Game of Thrones. I really hope they release it as like a season eight supplement on the Blu-ray or something like that, because there are things in it I really want to see. Um, number one, I'm curious how bad it actually was. And there are, there are scenes in it, like the Mad, they filmed a scene of the Mad King executing, a flashback scene executing Ricard and Brandon Stark. I want to see that. I would love to see the Danny Carl Drogo wedding night take place more like it was in the books. Yeah, it would be it's a little weird to see a different actress playing Daenerys as well as Catelyn Stark. But I still want to see it. You know, the, the White Walkers, the others, language that was featured in the original pilot. George R. R. Martin has a cameo in the original Unheard pilot. I would love to see that. And of course, I'd like to see anything new that I haven't seen before when it comes to Game of Thrones. So the question is, would you guys want to see it too? Eric, yes. The answer is yes. Next question. No, I'm kidding there. Uh, But this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. After a while, you got the things you love and you watch them and you read them and you live in that world of fandom of uh, of that thing. Uh, And then um, after a while, you just you not just want to look back. You want to dig into the stories. Star Wars. It's the world I live in. And I am I am interested in the next Star Wars novel 
but I'm even just as more interested in a Star Wars archives book. Actually, I still need to get a hold of that copy. But the art of books, all those kind of things, the making of, uh, we enjoy those kind of things, especially if you just have a, a, a passion for these properties. And we all here have a passion for HBO's Game of Thrones and the fabled, legendary, unaired pilot. Well, parts of it, actually are, right? There's some shots. I think there's some of the stuff with Sansa in the Great Hall when she's talking to Cersei and and Catelyn Stark there. It's a very young uh, Sophie Turner because it was from the pilot. I can't remember the exact breakdown of of what shots are or aren't, but it's there. But overall, yes, it's an unaired pilot, which there are a lot of unaired pilots all over Hollywood, just on the the floors there, the offices ready ready to be watched. But this one's weird This one's really different because uh, it'd be like if the first cut of A New Hope was released uh, or or finished and they were going to put it, go shoot it all again. They re-edited Star Wars. Marshall Lucas comes in, kind of saves the day. That's wonderful. Again, behind the scenes, urban legend story. Not urban legend, but uh, a story we all know. Um, But actually, some of it starts to take on urban legend proportions uh, uh, and the myth behind a lot of these behind-the-scenes stories. And the Game of Thrones pilot, I don't think Eric will ever see it. I don't think uh, it will be part of the season eight disc disc set, the the Blu-ray set. I'd love to. I think there could be issues with... uh, um, you know, the actors, or I, I don't know. I don't know the business side of that. I'm just openly speculating at this point. Um, you know, you'd obviously have to pay those actors, uh, and, and it just be my, maybe maybe Michelle Fairley uh, and, and uh, Amelia Clark don't want you to see the other performers because then you might uh, think, oh, yeah, it should have been them. Uh, it is a weird situation. It is unprecedented. Uh, on a show on this level, you might find other examples of pilots being redone and networks saying, all right, let's go get it right. But HBO uh, could have easily just cut their losses right there. The show was already a risk. High fantasy uh, on a 45 to 55-minute weekly scale. I don't, I don't think a lot of people thought this was going to work to the level that it did. So the fact that a pilot came in with Dan and David, who... Uh, did not have a, a super big track record when it came to, you know, show running shows. They got this. They got this probably a lot because of the love of uh, and support of George R. R. Martin at, at the time. We'll see what he uh, feels now. I don't know. You guys ask him. Um, we'll never see it, but it's unprecedented, and I want to see it. And this goes back to the idea of the this kind of book that I want. I want a big behind-the-scenes, let's go through the pilot. Going back to this book, which I all think you should get if you're Star Wars fans and you haven't read How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, Chris Taylor does run through like the early, big, finished first draft of The Phantom Menace. And even though I'm a prequelist and I do quite enjoy those uh, silly little prequels, I read this first draft and what what, what potentially was there, and I'm, I'm very intrigue but that's the thing i don't think george wants that out there george doesn't want you thinking about what might have been he wants you thinking about what is and i think the producers and a lot of the performers especially the ones who were in the pilot and stuck around for many 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 seasons i don't think they want any of us looking back they want us looking at what was there are a lot of interesting things like eric said the death of uh 
of uh, Rickard Stark. Uh, Brandon Stark would have been very interesting. I would have liked to have seen that. But would it have looked like the flashbacks to the Mad King and Jamie killing him, all those things we kind of got in the later seasons, would have would it have looked and felt like the show we know now? I don't know. Yeah, a lot of the same people might have been shooting it there, but a lot of changed, the, the look of the show changed by the time we saw those flashbacks. So I don't know if it would look the same. Uh, the White Walkers and the language, yeah, they definitely, the show made a choice uh, uh, to to take the White, White Walkers a certain way. In, in that opening of, of the book, A Game of Thrones, in the prologue, yeah, the, the White Walkers, the others, are, are, are different. I'd describe them, I think it's fair to say, different. But the same, the same feeling, the same spookiness. They look different, almost described as kind of having a beauty to them. There's a humor to them, a lot more personality. I think the personality kind of, it never really emerges, but I think later on, even with the Night King and even some of the his generals with the weird smirks or looks, I think there's a little bit going on there, but I wouldn't say they enjoy a good joke. Where it seemed like there was some, if I recall, there's some laughter, they're laughing at uh, uh, Garrett and Will and, and, and Sir Royce, so... I would have liked to seen a different take on that. But again, that was an old take. Something about that pilot. Many things about that pilot didn't work. So maybe one day we'll see more. Maybe you can find some stuff out there on YouTube. I know a lot of that stuff does exist and does get out there. I have not personally looked. Maybe you have. I wouldn't be opposed to. I love some of the deleted scenes from Star Wars. That uh, Even now, even now I'll stumble onto one that I might have heard about but uh, didn't see and, and that's one of the the weird weird victories of uh, the internet isn't it uh, there's a lot of things uh, about the internet and social media and stuff that we all don't like but then there's the ability to see moff jared gerard get choked by darth vader uh, for not letting him see the emperor i mean i waited my whole life i'd heard about it waited my whole life to finally see that so thanks youtube maybe the youtube could do the same for Game of Thrones. Eric, thank you for the question. Final one of the day comes from a new caller. Hey, Ken, Jordan Huffman here. First time caller, big fan of the show. Please keep it going. Um, I'm just curious to see what your thoughts are on a theory that I have about why George R. R. Martin is taking so long to write his books. Um, I don't think I'm the only one that thinks this, and I'm sure you've probably heard it before, but I'm just curious on uh, what your thoughts are. I think that he started writing before the Internet age, and he did not know that, you know, fan theories would be so prevalent and that, um, you know, people would solve his mystery of John's parentage, the R plus L equals J, and then spread it like wildfire all across the internet globally so quickly. I didn't think that he knew that that was going to happen, and he never expected it. But since it did, he still wants to surprise his audience. So I think what he's doing is he's taking a really long time because he's trying to come up with a different surprise ending that still makes sense with what he's already written. Uh, That's my thoughts. What do you think? Jordan, that's a great first call. Jordan, coming out strong, coming out strong, his first call. And Jordan, yeah, we will keep this show going. I have a lot of fun. Uh, and, and it's in large part because of, because of these type of calls. I love this take. Yeah, we hear a lot of little uh, theories. And I, I'm not going to uh, you know deny, I have, every once in a while, I like to roll up my sleeve and get into a why George hasn't finished the book's theory. Um, I think more often than not, the answer is usually pretty simple. And George... George is a pretty honest guy. He's still, like, got the last working live journal in Hollywood, right? And he's out there in New Mexico writing. And when he gives an update, I believe it. 
I believe that he's like, no, nah, there's no secret deal uh, to keep the books back until the show is over. Uh, but it's a juicy one. I like thinking about it. I thought about it, too. I still think, I said earlier in the show, I still think there might be something of not a maniacal, like, let's wait, but just like, a, you know what? I'm still working on it. I'm still getting there. Fire and Blood came out. A lot of other things have come out. I'm working on other shows. The book will finish. The show's got the spotlight right now, and we'll get it done And when we get it done. I think, again, the answer is sometimes usually just uh, what the answer is. But, Jordan, um, I've never really thought about it in these terms, and maybe some of you listening out there have thought about it this way. Yeah, when George starts putting pen to paper, it's a different time. It's the 90s, baby. We're listening to Stone Temple Pilots and Toad the Wet Sprocket and the Gin Blossoms and, and uh, you know, Ally McBeal is the big can't-miss show of the world. Uh, which, by the way, I quite enjoyed. If I had a podcast going back then, and I was on the radio back then, but if I had a podcast where I could sit just talking for an hour about what I would, Ali McBeal would have been a, a weekly topic. Maybe I still can do that. Anyways, I think, I think Jordan, you're right. It's a very different time. Now, I don't think you're necessarily 100% right, but it's a fun theory. I can see it. George starts, starts writing this book in a very different time where it's uh, more about, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more about the chat rooms and chat groups and not the constant onslaught of Twitter and hashtags and Facebook and websites and podcasts like mine, all those kind of things. None of that exists back then. So we could probably write uh, in a little bit more of a vacuum. And what's interesting to think is, George does. George R. Martin. We always talk, talk about George Lucas on here. George R. R. Martin doesn't strike me as the type of creator that has a plan. I'm sure he has an end game. I think that's part of the the notes he gave Dan and David and HBO and everyone. And that's I think it's going to get to the same spot. But George also doesn't strike me as a type of writer that, if he gets the urge to go another direction or to veer left. Uh, he's not going to turn away from it. He's going to lean into it. And quite frankly, I mean, I think you could say that's why we have five books and waiting on a six and a seventh. And who knows, maybe more. There has been times he's hinted, uh, I don't know, maybe there's more. He writes and writes and lets the story dictate where he goes. And it's sometimes wonderfully messy. Don't get me wrong. I love everything he's written. I, I sometimes wonder if like George needs like 12 more editors to, to rein him in, but it's not a bad thing. Let him go. Let him go. Um, I don't know exactly how he works. I am fascinated by it. That's why I'm watching these interviews with him. And you should do it too. If you haven't go down the George RR Martin wormhole of interviews. It, it's really fascinating. So Jordan. Yeah. In the mid-90s, he's cooking this all up, and he's like, I got a theory, and it's buried deep inside. (laughs) And then suddenly the ability for fans to talk with other fans just keeps getting easier, and it keeps getting actually more important. I think if you have a podcast or if you have a blog and it's covering Game of Thrones and you got fans, you got listeners, and you got reactions, you might want to dig in even more. You got explainer videos, all these things, theory channels. All of you listening now, everything I've thought and everything I've said, it all has just picked up uh, momentum and speed and power in a way that no one really could understand. No one could really see this coming. 
this is this powerful thing we have, this internet. I think it saved lives. I think it's connected people from all parts of the world. It's done wonderful things. It also has just given us a forum to discover George R. R. Martin's hidden storylines a lot easier. So, yeah, is he intentionally sitting at his writing desk, rolling up his sleeves, snapping those suspenders and saying, how do I trick them again? How do I do something even bigger and better? How do I do what's not expected of me in the story? I don't necessarily think he's doing that. I don't think he's definitely doing it in some maniacal way. But it might be in his mind. It goes back to Kevin's question about the show. How much does it influence? And how much answers does uh, does he want to give uh, Anymore, uh, you know, uh, maybe there's uh, something, the direction that the show went that he's like, I'm not concerned with that. You're not going to get that answer. But does he feel like he has to answer it? I, I would think not. But it might be there. It might be in his mind. Is he changing the end of it all? I just don't think he can. We know it's going to be different. But what he might be changing is very much how we get to that end, even from his original plan in the 90s. R plus L equals J, which was the coolest T-shirt I owned for a while because either people were like, what is, is a white wolf or is that a dog? There's a blue flower and like a dragon. What is on your shirt? And I'd have to explain it. Or someone would walk up to me and be like, R plus L equals J. Cool, man. I have that shirt. I wear it. It's just not as cool now. Now everyone knows. And so maybe George is thinking, what else can I put in there that no one sees coming? And is that important to him as a creator, as an author? Is it more about surprising, or does he still feel strongly about telling the story that he set out to tell? We might never know that answer, Or the book might come out, and we might start getting those answers. Jordan, thank you for that call. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Vic. I want to hear more voices. I want to hear new voices, old voices. I want to hear regular voices. I love hearing from all of you. We'll get Thomas back on the show soon. Thank you so much for being so supportive of Thomas Rizzling, Sir Thomas Atal, popping on the show uh, via Skype up there in Canada. What a subject of the Internet. And the power of technology. I'm talking to this kid in his like living room in Vancouver. Kid, he's like 60 now, right? Kidding, Thomas. Um, and we're doing this show, and I love it. And I love hearing from all of you. We are connected by the power of technology to talk Game of Thrones. We'll see you soon here on Casterly Talk. You can follow me at Ken Napsock. If you want to pick up my book, Why We Love Star Wars, you can go to KenDapsack.com for information on how to do so. Or you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Target.com, a lot of places. You can pick it up. And an audio book, read by me, is on the way. Stay tuned for more information on that. We'll see you next time on Casterly Talk. <laughs>